This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of scripture. Most people have experienced traumatic events and its aftermath, and we often don't recognize it in the church, but it significantly affects how we relate to one another. And churches can be places of great joy, but also great complexity and difficulty. And unless we address people's traumatic stories and histories and ways of relating to one another, we're really never going to get to the fullness of relating in Christ and the Spirit that God the Father wants for us. Um, Scott, last time I talked to you, uh, when we were talking about horror, uh, your other topic, um, but, uh, this, this idea of trauma has come up quite a bit. Um, and even with my own students, I've, I've realized a problem is they use the word trauma and traumatized for everything. In fact, I, with an Mm -hmm. alumni I was talking to, I had to tell her, you need to quit saying that your parents traumatized you, um, because that's not what happened. That's Um, right. They just did something that you didn't like and you kind of had to work out over the years, but that's not the same. Sure. So how do you help people differentiate what what is actually traumatic and uh, versus what's discomforting? Well, I think that one of the difficult things about trauma is that there is a subjective element and that's recognized. However, according to a medical psychiatric diagnostic manual, the way of speaking about trauma is a traumatic event is an event in which you fear for your life and your capacity as a person is overwhelmed. So getting physically assaulted and beaten up in a car park by three guys, that is a traumatic event because you may well fear for your life and probably you're going to get knocked down on the ground, you're going to be overwhelmed and you're not going to be able to defend yourself. So you fear for your life and you're overwhelmed. Whereas if my parents were... um, particularly harsh Christian fundamentalists that didn't let me drink alcohol till I was 21, that's not really a traumatic experience. That's um, a conflict I had uh, with my parents and um, it was part of growing up and becoming an adult and figuring out um, how to relate to alcohol, how to relate to Christian parents um, and how to make your own decisions. But it's not trauma, trauma and it's not traumatising unless that dispute over alcohol included assaults in which I was fearful for my life and my capacities were overwhelmed. So you're right that there's been a huge concept creep um, to do with trauma. Is there anything such thing as a slow drip trauma? One that builds up over time? In the book, we talk about um, what we call commonplace horrors, which are things that are, like for most of us, they seem like uh, they're difficult, but pretty familiar everyday things, which we struggle to cope with perhaps, but don't don't often rise to the level of trauma. But it, 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 it's shown to be the case that people that are exposed consistently to these these commonplace horrors, these these things that don't in themselves rise to the level of trauma, but they can over a long period of time actually come to the, the position where your body just essentially shuts down in an attempt to protect itself against 
against this just basically consistent bad stuff that mm. is going on and um, undermining your sense of safety in the world. The controlling behaviours that we see in intimate partner violence, so for example, where a husband restricts their uh, wife's contact with family and friends, access to finances, um, permission to leave the house even, um, those kind of controlling behaviours will reduce a person's sense of safety in the world, will become overwhelming over time, and the the person who is controlled and the subject of domestic violence will basically experience that they're living in the realm of death rather than life. So commonplace horrors are, are horrors and they are traumatic. And in fact, most of the trauma experiences that we will deal with in church are the accumulation of those commonplace horrors. Um, so you, you may not see the physical evidence of such violence, but you will see it in terms of people's interaction and often their struggles um, in faith, their religious struggles, their religious distress. Um, they uh, will struggle in prayer. They won't feel that God is close. Uh, they'll see no point to coming to church and meeting with others, for example. So commonplace horrors really are um, as problematic as gross horrors, the, the terrible events of violence that we all are familiar with. And the book we're talking about here is Dawn of Sunday, The Trinity and Trauma-Safe Churches. And it's three of you that wrote this, a, a trifecta of authors, uh, yeah. Scott Harrower, Josh Cocaine, and Preston Hill, correct? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, any um, traumatic stories of three people writing a book that sounds, <laughs> that sounds like it could have been wonderful or torturous, depending on you three? Well, I mean, the book came about um, – I mean, we we'd had conversations and had had got on and decided we wanted to write something together, and then a global pandemic happened, and we were basically all confined to our own homes, um, and actually that was the perfect the perfect way to um, to write a collaborative book. It turns out because mm. uh, suddenly a four hour Zoom meeting is is the norm, and so actually you can you can get away with these really horribly long collaborative writing meetings because you've got literally nothing else to do. Um, so it turned out that that actually, we, we, we got something good out of what was, was a pretty, um, pretty terrible couple of years. And how do you think you three, like how did this relationship start? How did you all land on this particular issue? Well, Scott sent me his book. Um, if, if anybody knows Scott, he's, he's the kind of guy that just, uh, puts himself out there, which is, which I love about Scott. So he just messaged me out of the blue and said, can I send you my book? I think you might like it. Mm. And I said, sure. I don't really know who you are, but that's fine. I'll read it. Uh, <laughs> and then I, re I reviewed his, uh, I reviewed Scott's book, um, God of all comfort. Um, and I put my review online and I basically said, this is, this is a really important book, uh, in, in systematic theology that can bring trauma into the conversation, but it just doesn't go anywhere near far enough telling us how, what to actually do about it. Mm. And then uh, I basically bumped into Scott at a conference in, in the U S and he said, um, thanks for your, your review. Do you want to actually do something about the problem? Right. Uh, <laughs> do you want to just sit there and whine and whinge or you want to do something about the problem? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, that's like that's the best best impetus. Uh, but you guys are on three different 
con- uh, continents, correct? Yeah. So, so the meeting up at that odd hour for each of you is, I guess, par for the course now. Yeah, that's right. So Scott's on coffee. I'm on whiskey right now. So it goes with different time zones. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, it balances out the book, I think. You get both the coffee and the whiskey throughout. Um, I want to go back to the people kind of carrying the traumas with them and uh, think about, I can imagine even now uh, having read your material, gone back in my head through my years as a pastor and thought, oh yeah, man, I was blowing past a lot of people who were carrying traumas in their bodies with them and people who were suffering from that. And I was misinterpreting all kinds of things. And I think there's Certainly a way in which once you come, once we've heard you reasoning with us about this, uh, there's a certain amount of guilt and shame that comes on you because you're thinking, wow, I really miss hurting people. Um, how do you, like, do, do you actually, did you have that experience as you learned more about trauma or, and how did you deal with that, uh, like pushing forward? I think you're right. Like there is a, you know, Jesus says, you know, blessed are those who grieve. And I think as we grow closer to him, he helps us see things that are to be grieved over. And I think as we grow in wisdom in that that union with him by the spirit, he does lead us to recognize things we hadn't in the past. And you're right that there is a certain grief and guilt that comes with it, Drew. Um, there's people that I misunderstood as being difficult at times and I hadn't really reckoned with what was going on for them. And I I've, I've do feel really bad about that. And I've tried to restore and repair those relationships. And actually, now that I'm back in the church where I used to work as a layperson, I actually get to work with them and share in agency together and collaborate, which is awesome. But you're right, Drew, it, um, learning about trauma and, and growing our care for one another is something that requires that recognition that we're not perfect, but happily we're working with the Good Shepherd and he can do far more than what you and I can do in a person's life by his spirit. Um, but it, it really does require growing in wisdom. I, I, I think that's one of the, the key themes of the book, actually, is that uh, we are we we are all imperfect as, as human beings and as pastors. And uh, we will all miss things. That doesn't mean we can't train ourselves to be better and to notice things. But ultimately, um, healing comes from uh, from from the Good Shepherd, mm-hmm. comes from from the life of the Trinity. And I think we have to recognise that in pastoral care that we will always miss things. But actually, mm-hmm. uh, it, we we can't fix everybody, and that's not if that's our starting point for pastoral ministry that we have to be able to fix everybody and notice everybody's problems, then we, we will always be in that position of guilt and shame about what we've achieved. And so for us, it's important that actually, like Scott says, we are ministering alongside the Trinity, the source of, of true healing and, and restoration, uh, not in place of. Hmm. I think that's crucial to what we're doing. Uh, so I can imagine... Um people in the church, uh, leaders and pastors and maybe just interested parties, picking up this book, reading it and thinking like, okay, I want to like put some of this stuff into practice. And I can think of two different ways and you have more uh, in the book, but st- to start preaching on trauma, right? Uh, to kind of like, uh, what do you call it? Draw out those people who are traumatized by just talking about it. 
Um, and then like putting on the binoculars or the goggles that allows you to see what you didn't see before. Uh, I can also imagine that going sideways on people as well. Um, so I wonder what your straight counsel is on if you really wanted to take up this cause, which I think as soon as you learn about it, it becomes a no-brainer. This has to be part of the life of the church. Um, how do you start and how do you start responsibly? So a big focus of our work has been to consider what makes a community safe, so a safe place within which you can raise these issues. Um, and so one of the key principles in the book is do no harm. So you need to think about how do we create a safe community in which there will be no harm as a result of raising these issues. And um, one of the most important things, Drew, is um, basically a commitment for all of us to be growing in Christ-likeness so that our churches are places uh, noted for humility and meekness, pure-heartedness, righteousness, grieving over evil, so that when things come up, we listen to each other as those who are meek, peacemakers, who are pure-hearted, who are humble before one another, who pursue righteousness given what's happened. So being a community of virtue and growing in Christ-likeness is, is really the preparatory work. That's mm. that's one of the key insights of the book for creating communities of safety. But I'll hand over to you, Josh. Yeah, I think one of the key things to start with is, is to listen before acting. One of the things we talk a lot about in the book is that there's no, um, there's not a one size fits all response to trauma. Um, actually, what one of the things that's um, unique about it as a problem is that we need to focus on individuals. And so there are general things that we can give as advice of how to respond. But ultimately, it has to begin with uh, understanding the human beings that are in front of us and listening to their stories and letting them know that, that it's a safe place in which they can share their stories um, and they can share their wounds as well as the things that... Um, the joyful things as as well as the the things that are difficult and so i think it has to begin and and it has to continue with listening throughout it has you have we have to be attentive to the people in front of us and not assume that we know how to minister to them and with them um so to think about both what that trauma safe church would look like um another way would be to flip it on its head and think what doesn't it look like or what would hinder uh trauma safe churches and uh, and most people are going to get a little more reticent here but you know i think of all the literature and uh, i don't want to say controversy but discussion of the narcissist pastor the pastor who must lead in a particular way um and I can even hear some people listening to this right now when we talk about safe churches or safe places, they're going to go, oh, you know, here we go, snowflake uh, technology. But you're you're really talking about like my dad, you know, a Vietnam veteran who carries traumas with – even though he's processed them and he's, you know, he's done okay in the last 50 years, but he carries those traumas in his body, right? That guy walking into a church still needs a safe place. Uh, I wonder what kinds of leadership – um, or kind of church communities you would see as like possibly creating hurdles to trauma safety? 
I think it would be churches that demand uniformity of practice, irrespective of who the person is. So just a very simple example is um, survivors mm-hmm. of sexual abuse often feel very uncomfortable walking up to someone to receive the elements of communion where the person is on a higher level than them and they try to put something in their mouth. That's a level of intimacy that is very uncomfortable. And, you know, if you're a pastor and you have someone um, who doesn't feel comfortable taking communion, well, just be flexible and and offer um, the Lord's grace in a different way to them. Like, please just be caring and um, and don't demand that people all participate in the same way. It's also the case, you know, in Anglican churches, we often have the greeting of the peace where we all turn around and greet each other and it's like handshakes and often it's hugging as well. Well, let's, let's be mindful of the fact that people just aren't comfortable um, with hugs and touch if they're survivors of sexual abuse in particular. So I think a, a starting point is, is to not oblige your people to all behave in the same way assuming that there are no barriers coming from trauma. Um, so it's a lot of small things like that, Drew. It's also about what you're paying attention to, what you're celebrating, I think. if you're, th- There are a lot of churches I can think of that um, you, you go away thinking that the secret, that the Christian life is one in which we're all madly in love with Jesus all the time um, and in which... And there's this kind of pretense that everybody's doing great. And that's what being a Christian is about. Um, and so we don't pay attention, for instance, to uh, the Psalms or the uh, the laments that we find in Scripture, which uh, actually focus on how terrible things are some of the time uh, and, and how angry we feel at, at people. So that the, the church that doesn't have space for um, the emotional breadth that you find in Scripture um, that that only sings songs about how good God is and how nice he makes me feel. I don't think that's a space in which um, people that are survivors of trauma can, can really ever feel um, included in because that's not their experience of the world. Yeah. I think there's a, a lot of popular worship music today where I find myself saying, I don't know if I can sing this today <laughs> or some of it. I don't yeah. know if I can sing at all. Not, not even because I think it's theologically wrong, but maybe it like, I don't know if that's the disposition I can take, uh, towards God. So the non-uniformity and I, sorry, Scott, I just want to be specific here. Um, because I think it, it's helpful to think of like w- what it pushes us out of bounds. Cause I can imagine I've been in churches, I'll just be honest, where, um, the pastor will say something like, now I know we're not all comfortable hugging, but gosh darn it, we're Christians and we're brothers and sisters. So everybody give each other a hug. That's the kind of like the move where you're, you're actually not accounting for the kinds of people that are sitting in the church. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, exactly. So for example, something that, um, we've been using recently in chapel is, um, um, you can, you use the line like instead of giving someone a hug or a handshake just exchange the sign of peace you know the two fingers up right facing the so, right you way you know it's just being yeah facing <laughs> the right way but, but that's an example of where you're like okay we, we don't want to do hugging and handshaking as as the norm because we know there are people that are uncomfortable with it let's think of a sign or a different way forward and it, it's just a lot of small details like that with receiving communion at at the beginning of the part of communion, you can say, you can come up now, receive the bread and the wine, 
Or if you'd like to remain in your seat praying, and that's that's great too, come come and we're going to receive communion seated after the service if you like that. And it's just saying, hey, you know, we welcome you as you are on your pilgrimage as you are, and we're doing our best. It, it's what Josh was saying. It's just having the goggles to see what people's experience might be and joining in with them where they're at and walking together. If uh, So if you think about like signs of trauma that maybe people should be more tuned into, and again, it can vary uh, a bit, but I think of like, you know, you hear certain things and you go, oh, that sounds like addiction, right? Or that sounds like codependency or an unhealthy relationship. What would be some signals that people should just be attentive to um, uh, when they when they have somebody who's traumatized, like the things that maybe they wouldn't expect? Well, I mean, one of the main issues with trauma is that it means that people are responding to one another and situations that come up um, using resources that might not lead to um, health and to a healthy self for the person and those in other relations to them. So, for example, you might have people that that are very, very um, overly concerned that they're not safe when they go to a Bible study group or a small group. And that, that would be um, a, a, a reason to come alongside and say, you know, I'd love you to come over to our prayer group, but I, I notice you're like pretty uncomfortable about it. Um, I wonder if we could talk about it and just see what's going on. So often the consequences of trauma are felt in relationships and they're often felt in people drawing on uh, fight, flight or freeze responses um, that just aren't uh, suited to the kind of behaviours or uh, relationships into which they're being invited. So if someone's drinking to take the edge off before meeting you because it's such a pressure to meet one-on-one, well, then, then yeah, that's that's a sign that something's not healthy. Um, yeah, so that would be one. And there's often some, uh, there's often some kind of um, relational breakdown in, in trauma. And so um, particularly that, uh, I, I'm thinking of some specific examples of people that I know of that, for instance, really struggle to hold eye contact um, when they're in conversation with you. Or, or there's another person that I'm thinking of who um, leaves, will quite happily sit for a service, but as soon as we get to anything like informal conversation will disappear as quickly as they can. Now that not obviously not everybody who exhibits that behavior is, is, is dealing with trauma, but it's a good sign that something relationally is, has gone wrong there, that they're fearful of and distrustful of, of building relationship with other people um, because of things that have perhaps gone on in the past. And I can see the, the gap opening up here. So now say I'm, I'm noticing some of those those, the constellation of symptoms kind of emerging in a person. Uh, and then, and I think, okay, well, what's the next step? Do I say, Hey, can we meet for lunch? And I'm going to ask them, have you ever been, you know, sexually violated or in war or, you know, <laughs> have you ever watched anybody die? Like how do you, how do you take those next steps or what's appropriate or inappropriate even at that moment? So one of the things that we promote in um, the book is, that it's helpful for your congregation to, to know whether there are people in your church who are experienced with trauma or trauma-aware who are resources for people to come and talk to. So we, we want to say uh, to people in our churches that, hey, look, 
this is Jack and this is Melva. Um, they are uh, trauma-aware people and take a trauma perspective. And if you'd like to talk about something that's happened in your life um, with them, please, like, here's their phone number and they're totally happy to hear from you now or later. And so as part of raising the awareness of trauma and a trauma perspective in your church, we've also suggested that that, that people can be um, nominated in churches as resources. And, you know, one of the things with survivors is to let them take the agency to come forward. Don't try to overwhelm them and squish them into your recovery program or whatever you've come up with. So, so part of it really is raising awareness, raising resources, and then inviting survivors over time as it suits them, as they feel led and moved, um, to make themselves available of what you offer. So that's why churches need to be aware of trauma and recovery because you need to know what you can offer people so they can come forward and you don't do the, I'll take it to lunch and ask you about your war experience. I mean, I think it's also just about making people feel safe, like constantly reassuring people. And it's back to some of the conversations we had before about what, what's common practice. It's, um, it's reassuring people. If, if you want to rush off at the end without talking to anyone, that's absolutely fine. Um, but I'd love to talk to you at some other point is, is giving them the space and the permission to, to know that actually um, they, they do have agency and they are seen and that they are cared for. I think there's um, with trauma, often there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sense of people not, not feeling that others uh, see them um, or that they deserve to be seen. And so actually, if you can just create a context in which people can feel safe, then I think often a lot of the stories come out quite quite naturally um, if you just give people the time and the space to do it. Well, it, it does go back to what we were saying about um, being people of a Christ-like character. So if someone is arriving late so they don't interact with anyone and taking off early, well, let, let's say that your community is a community in which people do have transformed hearts and they're Christ-like. You know, the, the first time the person doesn't rush off, they meet someone who's really Christ-like and kind and open and non-threatening. That's wonderful. And then maybe they have five interactions with people and they are warm-hearted people who listen and they're meek and gentle Great. You know, over time, maybe the, the character of the community allows for that space and you've got to give it time. Um, so one of our great prayers is that we really be um, communities of people with transformed hearts. Hmm. I, I can see a couple of possibilities emerging too. Like, like you said, flagging up people in the congregation who can, you know, who are trauma aware, as you said, and, and that that could be really weird in some ways uh, or uncomfortable, but you could also like feature all kinds of things like, Hey, if you need help with accounting or taxes, this person has volunteered to do that. If you need gardening help, this person has volunteered trauma. Like you put it in the net. If, if you think of the church as a community of people who want to help each other, this would fit right in. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, during the cycle of the year, when the school year kicks off, you know, we always get the teachers to stand up, administrators who work in schools, like we're mm. praying We're praying for them. Um, when the financial year kicks off and closes, we get the financial people to pray. So, so you're praying for everyone at every stage and trauma is a part of the experience of many people and, and 
they're important things to reckon with as we grow as persons. So you're right, it does fit within a complex of addressing every life stage and all the issues that come up. So absolutely, Drew, you, you don't want to make it the one thing that your church points out. Right. And everybody stand up who's traumatized. We're going to no. pray for you now. Yeah. No. So, this would be at your seats. Uh, I can also see this going a couple of different ways. Um, and I, I wonder if you think it's proper for um, leaders in the church to express like, hey, I actually suffered this trauma and here's how I process Like having an open discussion. I can also see... Um, maybe because of my own upbringing, I can also see that becoming oversharing and burdensome uh, and create disruption. So I wonder if there's a if there's a way to do that tactfully and helpfully. I mean, the I mean, the question with preaching in general, a good question to ask yourself if you're preaching is, uh, who is this story for? Because uh, I've hmm. seen a lot of preachers who just kind of use preaching as therapy. And they're like, oh, no, <laughs> it's nice to share my problems with all these people here. And yeah, I'm right here, Josh. Like, you're coming after me. <laughs> but I think that's a good question to be asking yourself as you prepare. Who is this for? And actually, there are some occasions where actually showing some vulnerability and showing that you showing that you've learned from this experience can be really helpful just for actually say to, for somebody in the congregation who's been going through something similar to say that, like, you're not alone in this. But I think that you have to, there has to be some protection there. I, I was recently um, helping someone prepare a sermon uh, and they were going to share quite a vulnerable story. And I think the question that I asked them was, have you processed this yourself? Because if you haven't processed this, this is not the context to share this. Um, and I think it goes back to that question, who is it for? But absolutely, it can be, it can really be. Uh, a rich and fruitful thing to do in preaching to give attention to those issues, but you have to do it well. You can't, it, it can't just be a, I'm spilling out my heart because somebody needs to hear my story. That's not the context for that. Mm. Yeah. There can be a little bit of vulnerability porn, uh, in the pulpit, yeah. uh, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And you know, there are other formats other than preaching, that you can use, um, interviews, seminars, bringing guest speakers, um, experts in the field, and you can really do a lot and it doesn't all have to happen on Sunday and it doesn't all have to happen uh, from the front in a public setting in the way that churches are. And it's also really important that you, you uh, before you get into it, is that you, you know what kind of infrastructure is available to people. So who are the helpful organisations in your area? Who are well-known experts um, that can do some follow-up work? Um, so you, you really want to do best practice and, and be prepared. Now, I know neither of you are clinical psychologists that I know of. Okay, no, uh, but uh, just checking. Um, but um, I, I want to swing a hard case past you because I think every pastor at some point or leadership team is going to run into when the traumatizer and the traumatized are in the church together, uh, maybe even in the same house together. Uh, and there's a sense in which we're, if we're the community of Christ, we have to treat both uh, and we have to help both. But um, how, do we, how do we parse out those issues where people are still in the household uh, and being traumatized? Uh, I mean, have you run into this? Have you heard any good uh, examples of people uh, 
helping people to work through those issues? Yeah, in uh, a church where I was a pastor, we had this. And unfortunately, because it was an ongoing traumatizing relationship, um, we had to help one of the parties uh, leave uh, for their safety. The perpetrator was repentant, and so we walked with the perpetrator for a while, but in consultation with, and there were children involved, and in consultation with the psychiatrist involved, it was very obvious that that couple could not continue as they were at the time. So um, the decision was made uh, that they wouldn't continue uh, for the safety of the survivor and the children. And it was very difficult and, um, and unfortunately it got public, but the thing is two years down the track, it was absolutely the right decision. It was absolutely the right decision. And both parties now, about 10 years later, are Christians. They have grown, um, towards each other and towards the children. And it's actually true that God can transform hearts to transform the fa- hearts of fathers back towards their children and of children back towards their fathers. But it's a group effort and it's a really big effort and it's probably one of the hardest things in pastoral ministry that I've ever faced. It's very, very mm-hmm. difficult, but it can be done. I, I guess I'd want to say, look, it's really hard, but hard things can be done when you're ministering with the Good Shepherd in a healthy Christian community, which I was very fortunate to be part of. It can be done. I just love that you slipped Malachi in there just so subtly. So that was that was brilliant. Um, okay, and you have some other books coming out. This is a series of books that are going to be on uh, trauma in the church, right? Uh, the new studies in theology and trauma. So, what are other topics that we should expect to see uh, coming down the line? So we already this because the book you guys wrote is the is kind of the big the big picture book. Yeah, right? so we we already have um another book which is out. There's an excellent book by Sarah Travis which is called Unspeakable which is about we were talking earlier about preaching and and trauma and and Sarah focuses specifically on that issue of how we can uh, be trauma informed preachers which is a really helpful resource for churches. Um and Scott, do you want to talk about Deborah Hunsinger's book? Yeah, so Deborah Hunsinger is a well-known um, theologian who was really groundbreaking in terms of pastoral care, the church, how we do it well, integrating what we know from the world of sort of psych science and pastoral care and really healthy theology that's life-giving toward the church and doesn't avoid the hard issues. And so she has written a number of key pieces in the history of pastoral care um, and trauma. And what we're doing in that volume, Preston Hill, one of the editors, is drawing those amazing groundbreaking articles together into one volume for people. Um, And so that'll be coming out real soon. Yeah. Nice. Well, reverends, doctors, Scott Hauer and Joshua Kakane, thank you so much for your wisdom uh, and for producing this guidance for us. Thanks, Drew. Great to be with you. Good to speak to you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.